Hello there, and welcome to another episode of the Build Podcast. I'm your host, Anna Hayes, and today I'm joined by Chris Tolton, Technical Product Manager at Bluestream UK. Having recovered from the recent UK heatwave, Chris took the time to talk to us about Bluestream's involvement in the Summer and Winter Olympic Games over the past four years, and it's a fascinating experience. So without further ado, let's hear from Chris. So yeah, Chris, listen, thanks a million for joining me. Um, it's evening for me. It's morning for you. You're over in the UK at the moment. Are you, uh, how are you coping with the heat? Are you guys still hitting 40 degrees or, or has, it, uh, has it calmed down a bit over there? It has definitely subsided. It is back to miserable glory. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all good now in the UK. Yeah, good, good. I, I saw a lot of uh, commentary from home as well from the lads in Ireland because, I mean, obviously they got something similar and, yeah, it, it, it's just hilarious. You get three or four days of 40-degree weather and everyone goes completely mad. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think, definitely, I think, it's, definitely. I think it's, prob- it's probably good for the psyche that it's gone back to normal, I think. <laughs> Most definitely. But you, you, you know as well as the next person, it's 40 degrees in the UK. It's like a million degrees. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I'm still trying to get used to the summer over here, to be honest with you, uh, uh, which is why I'm leaving for half of it later this year. <laughs> so it hasn't been overly successful. But um, but yeah, Chris, look, at, as I said, thanks very much for joining me. We'll get on to the actual topic of discussion because uh, like any good Irish and English person, uh, you could talk about the weather for, for hours and hours, but I don't know if it's going to be much interest to our listeners. Um, but yeah, Chris, you're here to talk to us just about Bluestream and uh, Bluestream's role in the last couple of Olympic, uh, Summer and Olympic Games. Um, I suppose, look, um, we, we'll get on to, you know, the, the various projects and that in a few minutes. But I suppose to start with, can you give me just a little bit uh, a little bit of info about Bluestream, its expertise, um, and I guess how that expertise made you guys the perfect company for the Olympic Games that you've worked on so far. Well, yes, by all means. I mean, we're seven years into the existence of Bluestream, so I suppose in the grand scheme of things, we're still relatively new to the market. Mm-hmm. However, all of our team is basically made up of working from previous manufacturers so the entire combined experience from working for other manufacturers makes us a formidable team shall we say and of course we 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 have a sort of large company mentality uh and and effectively quite a fresh young new organization um our expertise is video distribution so sort of taking the king that is HDMI and distributing that for multi-point to multi-point, mm-hmm. um, predominantly starting off in the residential market. And as you can tell from the existence hmm. of what we're doing now, breaking into the ex- extremely large commercial side of things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, Jesus, seven years, it's um, it's nothing really, I suppose. Like, you know, I, I think about it, I've been here for three and a half. So it's like half of the length of time that I've been in Australia for. So, you know, it's it's mm. uh, it kind of puts it in perspective. Um, but I mean, for the Olympics, say, um, and I come out of a little bit of a background of news journalism, um, but I mean, you know, say like the tendering process for the Olympics, um, you know, there's there's obviously a, a huge, probably the, the biggest amount of pressure that could ever be put on a um, ever ever put on a company in terms of you know the the broadcast of it and that kind of thing. This you know worldwide event. Um, 
how did you guys navigate that or what how how did it how did it come to pass that you guys picked it up well that's that's the that's the brilliant thing of this whole experience to be fair is the tendering process is normally very very extensive Mm. however the main reason we were chosen is because the person who actually held the tender um and so we say promised to deliver the system um we were a company eager enough uh, and of the right size to be flexible enough to deliver the extensive range of requests that had been made by the olympic broadcast service that effectively for the technology we were using were not a standard set of features in most video over ip products Uh, our willingness also to attend and support the games as a case of i suppose you would say put our money where our mouth is uh, Mm. was a major factor in getting them on board and making the decision to go and use bluestream moving forward yeah yeah very interesting um very interesting and that i mean you know kind of one of those well you would say maybe once in a lifetime gigs but obviously you guys have done it three times um so we'll 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 move on to that um we'll start in um 2018 um for the winter olympics in pyeongchang um and i guess what 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 goes into an installation like this chris i mean you know the obviously the expansiveness of it um when did work start on that and what kind of challenges did you guys did you guys face with that so everything started development-wise, um, especially the software side of things, because there is a request for a, a standalone piece of software where they could set up and monitor the system. Um, and that all started in 2017, um, with the anticipation, obviously, of delivering the games the following year. Mm. It was effectively a, reinvent- a reinvention of the way our product actually works from the ground up at this point we're not going to lie we'd not had a project of this size and scale you know mm-hmm. a few thousand in by a few thousand out it's not something you see in the residential market yeah. um and obs weren't going to use the historical method of distribution at these games by which i mean up until 2018 there was a coax distribution of the commentary feed to many positions that was taken away. This was this was literally our one shot of if this didn't work, there was a massive problem. Yeah. Another thing that we had to keep in mind as well with this whole setup, of course, with the first games being the winter games, and it was always going to be a challenge, was temperature. Mm. Uh, in some cases, the equipment and ourselves were uh, exposed to what was minus 40 degrees during the, the winter weather and saying they were experiencing a cold snap in Pyeongchang at the time would have been a slight understatement. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was also the fact that some, in some cases, some of the challenges that we were facing was the actual equipment itself was almost expected to operate in what you would effectively call miracle situations in cable runs accidentally on purpose being over the uh, necessary length that was meant to be prescribed for the product. So, there was there was many challenges and development processes and everything basically kicking off in 2017 getting ready to get things lined up for 2018 yeah and some of those challenges chris did they did they only become apparent in 2018 when it was just about to go or was it a case at least that it was 2017 you realized that you know cable had to be longer or whatever the case might yeah. be or yeah. yes so, so it wasn't a case of suddenly getting to 
day one of the skiing and going, oh crap, we need, you know, we need this and we don't have it, or it, that kind of thing. There, there was a few moments like that. However, <laughs> 2017 is definitely the development process. Hmm. It's uh, developing the software, making sure that the actual firmware on the products themselves, the hardware that we were using, the, the multicast uh, at the time 100 series of products, um, had the correct firmware on and operated to the parameters that the Olympic Broadcast Service were happy with. Um, there was a lot of toing and throwing with us testing in-house, uh, deeming that, yes, this is fine for release, then sending this across to the broadcast service and then them giving us feedback and things like that. The the physical barriers and working condition, everything was, was all very much realised once we'd got feet on the ground in Pyeongchang. Mm. Um, because with this being the first use of this technology, um, there was very much a request for us to be hands-on in rolling out the venues, checking that the transmission end um, and the receiving end of both the the IP units all worked, that pretty much every cable run in the entire system was checked by myself or another member of the team. So Mm -hmm. it's very, very extensive process, whether it be the development process or the, the physical rolling out of the actual games itself. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it definitely sounds fairly full on. Um, and I mean, obviously, that's that kind of you said it was the first time that system was put in place. Um, and I guess that that kind of segues nicely into obviously, well, what was supposed to be two years later and what ended up obviously being three years later for Tokyo 2020. Um, <laughs> how how did that delay? How did that uh, deferral, I should say, uh, or postponement um, affect you guys, Chris? Because presumably you would have worked in a similar way. Maybe a lot of work was done 2019 for 2020 uh, games. And then obviously we all know what happens next. Uh, um, yes. What kind of um, how did that affect you guys? And what was the, the impact there? It, it was strange, to say the least. Um, <laughs> Day-to-day operations and our initial rolling out of everything, it didn't affect us all that much once we'd got to grips with the new working methods um, of what effectively would be quite strict restrictions. Um, This could be perceived as general day-to-day in the way in which um, the Japanese work sites are managed. It's very very paperwork-driven and by the book, shall we say. Um, but then adding in a layer of that of social distancing, not being able to um, go out in larger groups because let's say Pyeongchang, the they have teams within the broadcast service that are called SWAT teams, um, and these are the teams that go out and run all of the cables, deploy all of the equipment, set everything up, so that when the venue managers arrive, it's all done by the book. There's a checklist of everything done. The venue managers walk in and the games can begin. These SWAT teams normally consist of 10 people minimum for a SWAT team. We were down to four. Oh, wow. Okay. One of of those being myself. So technically three OBS staff and me. (laughs) Wow. Um, So there was those sort of predicaments as well. The strangest thing was is... The games were not cancelled right until effectively what you would call the last minute yeah, uh, of yeah. 2020. And 
morale was the biggest thing there was there was there was people out there that um they'd been stuck there since going out at the end of 2019 mm-hmm. um and as countries opened and countries closed they couldn't get out sure. but the strangest thing was is venues had effectively been entirely deployed um and people had just put the tool down and gone okay so you were you were turning up to venues that had literally laid dormant for an entire year yeah um because again, when when we were told that we would not attend until 2021, or we would not attend, there was still no date at that point. Um, every it, it was days before we were meant to depart the UK and head over there, but things were just left as they were. Everyone just stopped. It was very very strange. Quarantine as well was an interesting an interesting thing indeed. Hmm. Um, working from uh, a quarantine office within IBC <laughs> which is the International Broadcast Centre um, working from a quarantine office and having to remotely set up a product that another person had never touched used or set eyes on before all I've got is team viewer and a window open with the configuration software and I'm relying on somebody who's never touched the product before with an added language barrier to be my my hands and eyes effectively that wow. was most definitely a challenge. <laughs> and was that would that have been a technical person, Chris, or would it have been say like sending me out to set it off? Basically, <laughs> it, it it would literally depend on the day of the week and the time that it was. So it could be anything from uh, a Japanese language student, because that's one thing that the the OBS always do is you always have students, because um, sure. then that helps the teams overcome the language barriers. So it could be anything from. Uh, a Japanese language student right up to a, a broadcast technician. So it would literally depend of the look of the draw uh, of what time you clocked on ready to do your job and who was free at mm. the time. <laughs> well, well, it's lucky you didn't get a team of me setting it up for you. And I don't think the Olympics would have gone out quite so well if, in that case. That, that, that's remarkable. That's, um, geez, it's almost, it's almost unbelievable to, to, to think that that was the kind of, um, the kind of restrictions you guys were working with. It was it was crazy. It was it was it was very different. I at the time it was very hard to work through. Looking back, they are extremely fond memories. That for sure. That is for sure. Mm, absolutely, I can imagine. Um, and I mean the um, I suppose leaving aside the the date changes, and obviously as you mentioned there, there was probably that little element of whether it would go ahead at all um i know it was certainly a talking point here um between like i play sports and stuff like that um but um what else was different about it um uh chris in terms of say you know tech developments or anything like that i know obviously the system that you guys installed was uh, many times bigger than what what you'd done uh, for the winter olympics in 2018 um were there, were there other aspects of it, say, outside of the COVID, um, the COVID situation that made it more complex or more, more uh, challenging? A lot, a lot, a lot of the, the side effects of the complications we were having, unfortunately, to be a broken record, was COVID-related. Sure. Um, for example, we were meant to have uh, people leave from Australia um, to head out to Tokyo and assist in the setup and then stay on for the uh, Paralympics. But as you know, there was hmm. there was no getting in or out of Australia at the time. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the was... main <laughs> the main big difference 
was, as you say, the size. Um, Korea, uh, I think, worked out at 14 venues total. Um, Tokyo worked out at 57 venues total. So on, av- on average, oh. Pyeongchang, um, I think, worked out about, let's say, let's, let's break it down to 200 inputs to 700 outputs, for example. So that's 200 signals that are distributed to over 700 endpoints. Mm-hmm. Um, the actual size of the Tokyo Olympics was 500 signals sent to over 1,700 endpoints. Whoa. So, exactly. And <laughs> some of the some of the difficulties were building based. So, for example, Pyeongchang, 99.9% of Pyeongchang was specifically built for the winter games which is amazing because then you've got your cable runs and everything that you need to work with specifically laid in paths that were designed when they designed the building sure the pri- a, a, a perfectly good example would be the tokyo forum um where the weightlifting was held and that's that's in a high-rise conference center well the forum tokyo forum smack bang mm-hmm. in the middle of tokyo city so this this is a building whereby you are going from two floors down to two floors up where the stage is and best of luck finding a route from point a to point b for your cables Mm. so there was a lot of well-established venues um, especially because they were using venues from the previous olympics because they had the luxury of doing so sure um and there was a lot of heritage sites as well for example where the karate was held um, that is a, a huge heritage site uh, in mm. Tokyo, whereby well, I suppose you could reference it. I don't know what you have in Australia, but in the UK we have listed buildings yeah. um, where you, you cannot alter anything. The, there is no alterations allowed. There was a lot of working within parameters about, like that, where outside of the obvious COVID thing, you were hampered by paperwork, having to do things by the book, being in established buildings, that were not set up for for sort of taking this size of event and this type of equipment. Yeah. Yeah. And you couldn't barely with the listed buildings, probably if you'd wiped a speck of dust off of a window, you know, it would have nearly been in trouble for us. Um, it's, yes. It's, definitely. Uh, it's it's, um, it, it's listed buildings here as well, as far as I know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting point, actually, The just the with, the, with Tokyo in particular, the sheer kind of, combination of venues as you said obviously probably would have been maybe some that were built new maybe not but in most kind of games there are a few venues that end up being built specifically for it I think is kind of the standard so um yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting as you say the uh the, the the contrast there between something that's constructed to to facilitate you guys and then something that it's a case of right lads <laughs> over to ye bit of cre- creativity here now and whatever you do don't touch anything <laughs> yep effectively yep yeah and then yeah very interested I, I, and I imagine I mean geez I know we went into lockdown here in in um in Melbourne for I think it started it started towards maybe halfway through the Olympics and we were stuck in we were in a I think it was a short lockdown that time 
And I think I remember saying it, it was a circuit breaker. And I remember saying it to a couple of hockey mates afterwards. I was like, Jesus said, if it, if it had been the week before, we would have just had the Olympics for the whole week. And you, you wouldn't have hardly noticed that you weren't allowed out. Like, cause it was just, just fantastic to watch. I imagine you were, mm. you were, you were in Tokyo for the Olympics then, Chris, were you? Yes. So I was, I was there for the entire event. So a total of, total of three months I spent there. Yeah. Um, generally, 90% of your time is spent on the build-up, obviously. So yeah. you, you've, got, you've got a set period of time at the build-up. Um, then you have basically a short, let's say, a week before broadcast sort of pinning things down. And if there's any issues, that's your fault-finding period. Um, then what's known as SWAT, the guys where you go out in teams, uh, that ends about four days before broadcast. Um, mm-hmm. Then broadcast happens, you've got two weeks and then a week transitional period, um, which then leads into the the Paralympic Games. Yes. Very good. Very good. It's very interesting. Um, and I mean, yeah, geez, you guys, you know, that was obviously 2021. You were over there for it. And how we then you moved straight on to the Winter Olympics in Beijing in 2022. Um and I mean, obviously, I suppose there's a there's a big difference between the winter and the summer Olympics in terms of scale, in terms of the weather and that kind of thing. Um, are there any factors kind of that are other other than those say that are unique to one and not the other? Um, you know, is there do you approach, say, each the winter and the summer Olympics in a dip from a different kind of an angle? Yes, um, <laughs> you very, very much have to uh, simply put um, the obvious, the obviously obvious difference is is the type of sporting events now i'll put that a little bit more into context rather than stating the obvious um with something like the main olympic games you are most of the time predominantly city-based so you're based in the host city um in most cases they will build uh, an olympic plaza olympic village type area where you have a good five six seven eight maybe ten venues and they have the medals plaza, obviously, that's where they give the medals out for mm-hmm. places that don't have podiums. And it's very much contained. With the way the Winter Olympics works is you have a similar setup of having uh, a plaza type area where you have, for example, let's say figure skating or and uh, curling and a few other things. But they are city-based where you most definitely can't do alpine skiing. Yeah. Um, And that's the biggest thing is you go from having venues that are 5, 10, 15 minutes walk from each other to three and a half, four hours drive. Yeah. Uh, So distance distance is the the massive thing. And that's effectively why they used... Uh, our product which is a video over ip based product which allows you to convert what would be a signal going over copper from point a to point b to a signal going over fiber that then distance is just a, a figment of your imagination effectively it can just go as far as you need it to do be it from one end of a country to another yeah. or entirely one country to another yeah. um the winter games are always smaller that's that's possibly my my main thing that I prefer about the the Winter Games is it's more manageable. It's sure. not it's not as overwhelming as, yeah. as as the main games. Yeah. Um, 
Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, carry on. No, I was just going to say, just with the uh, obviously with uh, with Tokyo going a year later, and then Beijing in twenty twenty two. What was the turnover like between, say, working on Tokyo um, and working and then kind of going straight into Beijing? Because obviously 2021 probably would have been when a lot of work was done for Beijing. So was there an element of, you know, kind of splitting in a team, some people working on one, some on the other. And then the guys that were on Tokyo kind of came into came into the Winter Olympics then or how what kind of a turnover time period did you guys have for that? So for us, for Bluestream, uh, the turnover period was literally getting home after Tokyo, sort of saying hello to everybody within the restrictions <laughs> that we had at the time, um, getting Christmas out of the way and done with, and then getting flight details to go out um, at the beginning of, or at the end of January, beginning of February. Right. Well. Um, so we, it, we, it was pretty, pretty intense to say the least. Uh, mm. As a whole, the turnaround for... Um, the teams that stopped for the Paralympics, um, for example, the, the guys who work in the warehouse who would have had to have packed away all of the Blue Stream equipment ready to get it shipped to Beijing. They were in the warehouse in Tokyo. They waved bye-bye to the last pallet of equipment in September. Um, they had two weeks at home and then they flew out to wave in the pallet of equipment that they just waved off two weeks earlier in Beijing. So oh. it was... It was an extremely quick turnaround and yeah. thankfully other than the size of the system there was no need for any changes the the main sort of obstacle that we hit straight off the bat with Beijing was because of the quick turnaround none of the equipment had been factory defaulted should we say back to getting it out of the box and being ready to set up a, a system so you had thousands of thousands of transmitters and receivers that and you had no idea what system they were part of or or, or anything but mm. you know working together as a team be it blue stream be it the olympic broadcast service we've managed to get our heads around everything and get well as you saw the, the beijing games up and going and mm. running smoothly yeah uh, Jeez, the, the lads, COVID did, they, ju they just on. about had time to change their clothes and turn around and leave again. <laughs> yes, I mean, a couple of them didn't. Uh, <laughs> a, a friend, a friend, a friend that I've made over there, um, he tested positive for COVID the night before his flight. Oh no! Uh, which meant he had a two-week quarantine. So instead of going from Tokyo to home, uh, he went from Tokyo to Beijing. So, well, that was interesting. Absolutely, but um, yeah, Chris, the um. And I suppose you mentioned there um, in terms of, say, getting everything packed up from Tokyo and getting it moved on to Beijing, basically with about a 20 minute window, as from what it say, from what it sounds like. Um, yeah. Did you guys get hit at all then, say, with logistics, with uh, shipping difficulties and stuff like that? Because it's something obviously we've been listening to here um for oh god at least a year i'd say now that the just the whole um situation with freight at the moment is um is, is tricky um did that was that something that affected you guys at all no thankfully not the reason being is all the equipment that we used is managed transported and distributed throughout the games by obs themselves benefits of which they are huge beyond comprehension to the point where 
no one would dare delay any of their equipment. Right. <laughs> so effectively, preferential treatment would be the best way to put it. Um, it's a case of they, I won't say they have their own haulage company, but in the sense that there's that much equipment that, let's say, for example, Tokyo was a three-story warehouse. Um and literally you have a different department on each each floor. So you had broadcast equipment on the ground floor. Um, the middle floor was um, television cameras and things like that. Top floor was venue distribution equipment. They are a huge, huge, huge operation. So they kind of take over a haulage company um, temporarily and effectively, mm-hmm. I suppose you could say, turn it into OBS haulage. Right. <laughs> well, that's handy. Anyhow, so there'll be, there might be a few lads listening to this now that'll be wondering, wondering if there's a phone number going to be called out at the end of it for that, that they might be able to <laughs> get, in, get in touch with them, get some stuff sorted. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's definitely it's something that's come up uh, from kind of anyone that I've spoken to in the last six months to basically six months to a year I guess it's something that's come up uh, come up quite frequently um so yeah I was just curious it's uh it would uh certainly have added to headaches I imagine if it had been the case but um most most definitely I mean there's there's nothing quite like half your equipment going missing especially with something on that scale and so so very time sensitive yeah absolutely absolutely and speaking of the equipment then Chris um just to I suppose close it off really um can you talk us just briefly through the blue sp- the <clears throat> excuse me the blue stream products that you guys used obviously a, a ton of during these games yes. um and yeah just just talk us through what was used what um and what each of them did, I guess, really. Yeah, yeah, no problem at all. So you've you've heard me refer a lot to transmitters, receivers, and video mm-hmm. over IP, this, that, and the other. So effectively, let's start with Pyeongchang. We had the what we have dubbed the IP100 UHD. Uh, what that means, that's video over IP over a one gigabit network. <laughs> For every transmission point they want to send, they would need an IP100 transmit. And for every end point that they had, layman's terms to me and you, a screen, um, they'd need a receiver. So the 100 range sort of at the time was was fresh to the market. This was this was us stepping out into the world of video over IP. And the first biggest job we've got was probably the biggest job that you could get. Yeah. Um, then we kind of progressively moved forward and internally we'd developed the uh, the IP two hundred. There's there's a, a nice catchy sort <laughs> of um, escalation within the product for you. General progression. <laughs> so of course we'd sold them the one hundreds for the Pyeongchang games. Fantastic. Um, we'd stopped production of the one hundreds. Um, we'd started production of the two hundreds as the as the range moved forward. And OBS wanted to buy a, a Herculean amount more. So luckily. The 100s and 200s, fully interoperable, exactly the same functionality, but the 200s have got a nice little bit of USB. They didn't use it, but you can send USB over the network at the same time. Mm -hmm. So fantastic. So that was effectively sort of the transition between the the, the two things. And a lot of the the benefits, shall we say, of the one-touch configuration, and I'm I'm doing inverted commas with my fingers there, the Mm one-touch configuration, um, that we developed for the Olympics has sort of rolled out into 
what everyone can pick up and use themselves. So there's been a hell of a lot of benefits as far as Joe Public's concerned and being able to pick our equipment up. Um, again, thankfully, the, the Beijing games were exactly the same equipment, just scaled down. So now that they've got the extra equipment, it's a case of just expanding or reducing the equipment yeah. to, to suit the games. Yeah. Um, not that we're going to be there, but additional units might be required for Paris. Yeah. Not that we're going to be there, if you follow my meaning. <laughs> um, um, there's, there's definitely, we're definitely working a lot closer with OBS now, and there is development of whole new products within the IP range that we do that will be specifically developed in line with the Olympic Broadcast Service to bring in other parts of their system into the multicast system um, yep. and most definitely replace other systems. For example, we've developed the IP250. So it's not quite the 300, but it's hmm. not 200. See what we did. Huh. And that has Dante audio networking. Um, won't go too far into that, but imagine the same sort of video over IP of thousands of inpoints to thousands of outpoints and being able to do audio on top of that with exactly the same freedom Mm. OBS are looking to pull in the IP250s um, to replace some of the piggybacking they're doing onto the existing system they've got, not realising that we can do that also. So yeah. now that we've built a rapport and a, a very close relationship, um, there's a lot of work that we're doing together to sort of benefit them. Because ultimately, yeah. if we make their life easier, we're not only making their life easier, but we're making our own life easier. And then every single one of our customers inherits the benefits of the new products, the new software, the new firmware, and so on and so on and so on. Yeah. Wow. Well, God, um, it's a it's a hell of a story, a re remarkable, uh, remarkable journey for you guys um, in such a short space of time as well. Um, is there any particular part of it, Chris, for you personally um, that stands out? You know, do you have a favourite moment from throughout that time? Obviously, you know, um, to date, shall we say? Um, was there, was yes. there something in particular? Yes, I, I, <laughs> I do. It was it was a, a, an absolute moment of personal triumph, <laughs> shall we say. <laughs> so it was, it was my very last day of quarantine in Tokyo. Um, I was just finished on the Friday... Um, because at that point I was in what's known as soft quarantine. So remember me remotely having to um, mm -hmm. configure the systems with somebody else being my hands and eyes. I've managed to get into soft quarantine, which means we could be chauffeured effectively uh, to the warehouse and we could work in a specific desk, specific table, yada, yada, yada. yada. Mm -hmm. Configuring the last system of the day, we were about to pack up and go. And my laptop with everything on it effectively at the time it had the entire of the olympic system on it but we won't go into that it died <laughs> completely <Okay>. died <laughs> so my my first day out of quarantine uh, was going to a little place called akihabara which is effectively known as electric town so if you <laughs> want to buy anything with if you want to buy anything with a plug on it that's where you go so i had no cellular signal no local currency because I didn't know how to use an ATM because I couldn't figure out how to use them. <laughs> and I had to, I had to, I had to make my way across 
on my first day out of quarantine, make my way across to Tokyo City to effectively go to the biggest electrical retailers in the world, in Tokyo, like the the whole district, and buy a new laptop. Oh, God. (laughs) And I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you from that laptop now. So it was a success. Yeah. (laughs) But I didn't even I didn't even have any cell phone signal. I had nothing. It was a case of work out where I was going in the hotel on Wi-Fi, walk out the front of the hotel and best of luck. Oh, my God. I, 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 I actually get, get kind of uh, kind, kind of uh, not able to speak at the thought of that. Like, I guess every time I close a Zoom <laughs> meeting, if the little bubble to say it's converting doesn't come up straight away, I panic that I've lost the whole thing. So I can only imagine how you must have felt thinking that, you know, you had potentially lost the entirety of the uh, of the Olympic uh, technical, oh, yes. technical no, setup. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, what, what was how what was your reaction? Was it like pandemonium or was it that kind of calm um, kind of not, okay? No, it was not it was it was not calm. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I I invented a lot of swear words by joining others together. Right, yeah. Um, <laughs> it was that it was it was that sort of moment. I was I was a full um subscribe swearing enthusiast at that point <laughs> yeah yeah i can imagine jesus that's that's uh yeah like i said i think I, I think my nightmares might start with that story from now on and i wasn't even there so um yeah <laughs> fair, fair play for keeping the calm there because i i reckon i might have i might have gone into meltdown <laughs> i mean the the outside was okay it was i suppose the best way you could describe it is is like a swan on top of the water, it was perfectly fine. Underneath, it had just gone all wrong. Paddling like hell, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, look, Chris, I think that's as a, as good a place as any to leave it. Um, that's a fascinating story. Uh, really, really enjoyed chatting to you about this. Um, you've, obviously, it's uh, it, it's been something for you that's been uh, challenging and very, very um, uh, fulfilling at the same time, and. Uh, just want to say thanks very much for sharing that story with us um it's an absolute pleasure and uh, thank you for the invite and thank you for having me yeah no absolutely chris anytime anytime at all we'll um we'll uh we'll hopefully maybe chat to you again in a couple of years time about uh about um the the, the next chapter of it shall we say <laughs> yes not 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 saying that we are of course not saying that we are <laughs> no no not saying that we are but just you know just just uh, tentatively shall we say <laughs> Yes, definitely. Brilliant. Well, listen, Chris, thank you very much for your time. Much appreciated. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. My thanks once again to Chris for taking the time to join us today and give us a look at how these huge events were brought to life. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to keep up with all of the latest episodes. Give us a like on social media or log on to connectedmag.com.au to keep up with all the latest news and features. Until the next time, all the best.